Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. When we read the Genesis account in the Bible, it describes um, in Genesis chapter 1 what happened on the fifth day of creation. And as I read it there, it said, And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the firmament of the heavens. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Now, I must admit that I haven't spent much time underwater in the in the sea. So I've been snorkeling up on the Great Barrier Reef out on a, a, a coral atoll that was about 30 kilometres offshore. And I know that I was fascinated by the variety of sea creatures that were swimming there at the time. And I can remember, I think out of the group of people that were on the uh, the snorkelling tour that I was on, I was in the water the longest of, of anyone there. But just recently, um, while holidaying with some friends, we watched the movie called My Octopus Teacher. And my friends were quite enamoured with this movie and um, they had seen it and wanted to share it uh, with us. And so they were able to look it up on the, on the internet and, and, and show it. And it's a very interesting film, I think. Um, and it made me think about a number of issues related to creation. So the, the title of the film is called My Octopus Teacher. And essentially, it's about a uh, professional photographer by the name of Craig Foster, who was living in Tas in uh, South Africa, and he'd been involved in a lot of nature filming and, and filming of um, uh, peoples living in the desert, like the Kalahari uh, desertmen, and so forth. And one of the things that had impressed him as he was out filming these nature documentaries was the the way that, for example, these tribesmen who were living really uh, very differently to how we live in um, modern countries with, you know, all our uh, technological devices, motor cars and you know, concrete buildings and glass and mobile phones and cameras and and so forth. And we go to the supermarkets and buy food. So these people um, still hunted for food, and they hunted for food in in areas where you know there was a lot a lot of desert. So there there wasn't a lot of variety of food, and and really they had to track down that food. And what he was saying was that they became sort of connected in a way with their environment. They could read the different signs in the environment and how there was a balance in in the environment. In other words, they were um, there was a, a sort of a, a cycle and, and a balance that 
uh, within reason didn't get out of control. Whereas, for example, we're learning now about, you know, we, we mass produce plastics from oil. We then throw the plastic away and huge amounts of plastic are ending up in the sea. And not only are they killing sea creatures, but they're you know, the, the particles of plastic are then getting into the food chain and they're getting into us and even um, getting into, you know, our, our freshwater supplies, some studies that have been reported here in Australia, uh, different university studies. So the amount of plastics that uh, researchers have been able to isolate from beaches and and also from water and also from drinking water, including bottled water, which I was quite surprised. I don't think it's the same in spring water so much. but So we can see that we're causing major disruptions to the, the ecosystem. Now, this uh, man, Craig Foster, um, had... Uh, uh, developed some health issues probably related to overwork and he really needed to take a break and he he took up swimming, swimming in the ocean and what he wanted to do was he, he, he found it was very healing to go to this particular beautiful spot um, off the southern part of Africa and just swim. Now, the water was very cold. It was, well, I call it very cold. I think he said it gets down to about eight degrees uh, centigrade. So it was, it was quite cold water. But in order to um, embrace nature or, or, or sort of just experience nature, like literally immerse himself in nature, in his surroundings, to appreciate nature. He would swim without, without a wetsuit. He, he wore a, um, a helmet, of course, to keep warmth on, on his head so he didn't lose too much uh, heat energy through, uh, uh, through the head area, which is, an, which is quite important. Um, but otherwise, he would just swim in a basic pair of bathers with flippers, of course. And he began exploring the underwater world there, just with a snorkel. So he didn't want to use a, a scuba tank. He he wanted to immerse himself in the environment as much as possible just by snorkeling, like I had done many years earlier. And uh, I'm afraid he could hold his breath much longer than I could hold my breath. And uh, maybe he trained at this, but he would dive down and, and hold his breath and, and spend a minute or two underwater uh, just exploring the natural environment. And in this particular region, there were a lot of kelp forests. And, and he began to become aware of the amazing variety of creatures that were living in this uh, kelp forest environment. Now, one, one, among one of those creatures was an octopus. Now, how he discovered this octopus was he saw this um, collection of objects. Uh, they were different shells and little pieces of kelp and shell fragments, and they were arranged like a little structure and he was curious about this structure, and as he swam over towards it, suddenly the co- the structure collapsed, and this octopus sped away very quickly. And he realised that the octopus had camouflaged itself by 
uh, collecting, as, as it had seen him approach in the distance, it had gone to camouflage and hide itself by very quickly picking up objects on the ocean for bits of shell, bits of broken rock, uh, bits of plant, and arrange those and, and build a little covering for itself. So it, it looked anything but an octopus. The octopus, of course, swam off, but he kept on returning to the same spot and he made a – this was a very um, perhaps fortuitous decision that he made in that he decided to go to the same spot every day and just explore this little grove within the kelp forest every day the same. Now, I guess if it was me, I'd be looking for something different. I'd say, oh, well, I've explored that area. Let me move on and explore another area. But he decided to go back and just go to the same place every day and see what changes occurred. And he did this, and gradually, because he was there day after day, and the octopus saw him day after day. Gradually, well, he, he discovered the octopus's lair, the little cave where, uh, under some rocks where, or a little uh, opening under some rocks where the octopus had made a home. And, um, and he would come closer and closer. And after a while, the, the octopus, I guess, began to learn that he wasn't, uh, or it turned out to be a she, that she wasn't afraid of him, uh, that he wasn't going to hurt her. So, And gradually over time, the the octopus extends, well, after a while, it gets enough confidence and you can see as he approaches and puts his hand just there, the octopus at first puts out just one tentacle and just goes out and just explores his hand and an arm while again remaining the rest of her body is hidden and obviously hanging on quite securely with the other tentacles. And gradually from this house she explores more and more of him till eventually she comes out and explores him. And the film is about how he spends more and more time with this creature and this creature uh, begins to uh, develop more and more confidence in him and, and like to be around him. And it's quite, um, it's quite amazing. The octopus uh, goes through a trauma where it's bitten by a shark um, as it's trying to escape. And it was interesting that they were able to follow on camera uh, some of the antics that the uh, octopus went to escaping from this little uh, shark that normally preys on octopuses um, as part of its um, you know, food. And um, the octopus was able to hide, but not hide in a big enough space, and the shark was able to bite off one of its tentacles. And how, seeing the tentacle grows back perfectly um, with exactly the same number of, of, of suckers. And there was a lot of interesting facts about the octopus presented, how apparently each of the sucker, and there's, I think they said there were 82 suckers on each tentacle, and each... Um, sucker can be manipulated individually. So it's quite a complex nervous system to be able to to do that. One of the fascinating things that I learned as well was about their their diet and their food and that they drill can drill a little hole in another mollusk, in another little shellfish, a little um, sort of bivalve that uh, they live on a lot of 
little bivalve uh, shells that uh, live on the little creatures there. And what they can do is they can drill a little hole into the shell and they have these tiny little teeth near the the salivary gland and I think they can um, emit uh, an enzyme as well that slowly does well, help soften the calcium carbonate and they shell and they drill this tiny little hole um, only perhaps 0.6 of a millimetre in diameter um, and I've seen these shells with these tiny little holes in them and apparently they then inject a nerve toxin which almost instantaneously um, uh, kills the uh, little creature inside, which it then relaxes its muscles and it opens, and the octopus eats the um, insides of um, for its food. And um, oh, you know, I, I didn't I didn't realise that uh, that uh, they could. I knew they ate uh, crustaceans at the bottom, but I, I, you know, I'd often wondered about that. You know, how would they open the shells and this sort of thing, but. Um, this is um, curious. And a couple of things came out from the film. Throughout the film, of course, uh, Craig Foster refers to how the octopus evolved, how it developed these amazing uh, skills to avoid predators and camouflage itself and this sort of thing. And I thought, well, hang on, how can blind evolution, how which involves chemical changes to DNA, how can that result in mental skills that enable it to, in some way, either instinctively, be able to tear off pieces of kelp and wrap it around itself, um, or gather up uh, other pieces of shell and arrange it over itself so that... um, it appears to be an inanimate object. Um, how can these sort of actions, how can the, uh, the actions that it, um, it takes uh, to, to capture prey, like crabs and this sort of thing, and they had film of it stalking a, a crab, um, how does these decisions to make these sort of actions arise from chemical changes in a DNA. And I thought then about the same thing. What about spiders weaving webs? Um, Where do the directions come from to enable it to weave a web of a particular design? We know that spiders of the same, you know, sort of species weave similar webs and they catch similar type of prey. How can... Over millions of years, chemical changes to the structure of a DNA molecule result in actions like that, which involve some sort of thought processes. So it involves some sort of taking an information either in some sort of sensorial way and probably optically in the examples uh, of the octopus escaping from a prey and grabbing some kelp or swimming up into kelp and uh, arranging the leaves uh, or the you know, the um, portions of the, the kelp, I'm not sure they're called leaves, <laughs> fronds, <laughs> uh, around itself. Uh, because really these are 
Uh, if we think about our thoughts, as I've explained before, these are our thoughts are non-physical operations. You know, you can't weigh your thoughts. You can't measure your thoughts in a measuring facility. You can measure your brain. You can weigh your brain. You can weigh the brain of an octopus. But what about its thoughts? And where's the connection to how a chemical compound can affect a thought? Um, it's to me, raises some very, very important issues. And when people talk about these processes and these skills evolving, I think we run into some really, really major problems here. Uh, For a start, how can blind chemical reactions result in something that involves a very positive, evasive action to a particular type of prey? And how many goes would it have to have? How many chemical changes would it have had to have had be, you know, to enable the creature to survive? Otherwise, it would have been destroyed and eaten much more easily long ago. And we know that uh, the oldest fossils of uh, octopuses are found, uh, I think conv- they're conventionally dated about 300 million years at the beginning of the Cretaceous. So, you know, they're quite early on. And we know that... Um, other members of the cephalod family, like nautiluses, are found right down in the Cambrian, um, which is you know where the, the very earliest fossils are found. And so these, um, you know, like nautiluses, uh, which are a similar uh, creature, and we know that they're very highly intelligent, ag- aggressive hunters, hunters with very complex uh, systems, and they're right at the bottom of the of the fossil record which should be the very earliest part of evolution. And if they're anywhere near as clever as uh, the octopus, then, you know, we, we have serious, you know, uh, situation here because they're an extremely complex animal. You know, when you think of the ink glands, all the different enzyme systems that they have uh, in them, the enzyme systems produce the particular toxins, those particular toxins that have a particular reaction on their on the creatures to enable them to eat. All these things, the, the structures of these toxins and these chemical reactions required to produce them. No, not to speak of the... Um, the glands to produce them, the glands to hold them, the glands to inject them into their prey, um, the ability to that be coordinated with another mechanism to drill the hole so you can inject it into the prey, to me just powerfully speaks of creation. You've got to have a coordinated system. And that's exactly what the Bible talks about. It talks about how God created things. A super intelligent mind created these fascinating creatures. Now, one of the interesting things that I think was really touching in the film was that this little octopus, and I suppose the, the body of the octopus, as I try to remember it now, is a little bit bigger than a man's fist. Um, so it wasn't a, a huge octopus, um, and but in the end, that that octopus it it suffered some uh, tremor, and there were a couple of shocks. One time when he dropped the uh, one of the lenses or a lens cover or something on the floor, as the octopus was very close, and the octopus took off, and of course it didn't come near him for a little while after that, and. Uh, another time, too, after um, it had been, you know, savaged by the the shark and this sort of thing. But what had happened was because he'd spent a long time with this octopus and 
we're, we're talking about a couple of hundred days here. And he returned every day to the sea to this same spot. I think, um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to recall it. If you watch the film, you see that. Something like 260 something days, I think, he, he visited this spot. And it was over this period of time that he uh, had spent this time with this octopus. And you can see, in the end, the octopus came out and would just nestle up to him and just rest on his chest and he could stroke and, and just gently stroke the octopus's body and it would just lie there. And, um, and then, of course, when he had to go up to breathe, because remember he's not using a, um, a uh, scuba diving equipment, he's just holding his breath, he would sort of just gently unfold the octopus and, and just swim up. But he developed this, this relationship um, and you could see from the actions of the octopus that it had become uh, like a, a pet. Uh, there were also uh, footage of the octopus appearing to play. And I know I've read articles where um, octopuses in captivity appear to play as well and uh, how they can escape from their tanks in you know, search of food and this sort of thing. They're certainly fascinating creatures, but... This, to me, is really interesting, too, and I think, really, hang on, they're, they're members of, you know, the same sort of uh, classification of animals as snails, you know, they're, they're, but these are a, a totally a soft-body animal, and, um, you know, they live down there under the sea, but yet they could have some sort of relationship with, um, with the human. Now, to me... This points to, again, to a, a creation scenario. And I know I've mentioned this before in, in debates with atheists and they'll, you know, they'll draw up examples of really bad things, you know, worms that burrow inside people and, you know, cause them to die and all this sort of thing. But when I put this together with the stories of, you know, people have made pets out of lions and wolves and and other wild animals. And to me, I, it makes me again think, is this a remnant of a time when at once we were able to have these relationships with, ships with animals? And of course, you know, there is the issue of the, of the food chain. Well, you know, all animals have to eat and, and what did they eat originally were you know, all the, did all the animals um, originally eat plants? And, I mean, there are questions that we can't answer, that we don't know. But when I look at the evidence of what we do know, what we can see out there, and what the claims of evolution are, and I'm, I'm you know, and obviously, you know, Craig has, you know, been brought up in the environment where he's learned evolution and he's, he's, he has this worldview that these amazing properties of the octopus have evolved over hundreds of millions of years and, the you know, its ability, the little drill that it has and all this sort of thing has evolved. But really when you look at it scientifically, when you look at it from the evidence that we have from science about how the all these factors are controlled by the DNA 
and how the DNA is controlled and limited by chemical reactions that occur in nature and that a whole lot of those chemical reactions that will only occur in a living system. They can't occur in nature outside a living system. We have a couple of important issues here, and the first one is that it's impossible for a living molecule, a living organism, to arise from non-living molecules. That's the first thing that becomes very clear from the evidence. And, you know, if you produce some sort of living structure you've also then got to somehow within that structure form a code that forms a giant code molecule, which we refer to as DNA, that actually encodes the system about it so that it can be reprodu- reproduce itself and repair itself. And, I mean, that's just not... It's absolutely impossible for that coincidence to occur and work and be the same. And, you know, it's pretty logical we can see that. But then the amazing design structure that we see in living organisms as illustrated by the, um, uh, you know, by, by the structure, the, the, the interdependence and the technical nature uh, and the functional nature of the different parts of these organisms, how they are so specific in nature, how they work together as coordinated uh, functions to make a, an organism that can function and live, reproduce and so forth. Um, this is all coordinated and yet it's controlled by a chemical structure and we have to believe that blind forces of nature could produce this chemical structure. I think that's going to work. Again, we can see it, it's absolutely impossible. But then I think what came out to me in this film was that we also have this remnant that creatures we were, were meant originally to get on together. The whole Bible position of an original endemic state fits the evidence it fits the evidence of what we observe. And in ways, people have been able to restore that Edenic state often by working with wild animals and, and getting into a relationship with them. And it's interesting in Isaiah 65, um, in verse uh, 17, we read, and this was a prophecy that Isaiah made, and Isaiah made so many prophecies that have been fulfilled exactly. He, he was a very devout man that lived about 700 B.C., and he wrote, and this in the vision they saw, for behold, and talking, this is God talking to Isaiah, says, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And again, John writing, as he wrote um, his, his last book there in the Revelation that uh, the, the Jesus revealed to him and the vision that John the evangelist saw there, and he wrote um, in, Revel- in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, the first verses, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And God had created this environment, and uh, it says that God will dwell with us. And going on then to verse 3, He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and 
Death shall be no more, neither shall be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know, that's a beautiful promise, and that's what gives us hope. Evolution doesn't give us any hope, no hope for a future. But the Bible does, and the Bible fits the data so well. It fits the science so well. And that's why I'm a creationist, and that's why I believe in God, a creator God who loves us. I see so much evidence for it in nature when I look there. And a film like My Octopus Teacher just reminds me of that. You've been listening to Faith and Science. And remember, if you want to re-listen to these programs, just Google 3ABN Australia, or one word, .org.au, and click on the Listen button. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day. been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.